encourage you to open them with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 25 through 32 this morning. And so if you're using the Bible there in the seat in front of you, that'll be on page 978. Help you find it a little more quickly, 978. If you are not using a Bible in the seat in front of you, it's Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. Let's start by reading that together. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Amen. As we... finish out uh, chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians. Really, we're building on where Pastor Steve took us last week. As Pastor Steve uh, showed us what is out with the old and in with the new, this call in Christ presented by Paul the Apostle here to the church at Ephesus, extended to us at the church at West Creek, uh, to put off the old self, to put off its ways, and to clothe ourselves and put on the newness of Christ. That this walk and call of life and living in the church of believers is is this uh, one that is showing the fruit of this new self. And so this morning, before we we even turn to the specific applications here, I I think it would be, uh, we would do well rather to, to catch up. So as we we catch up, as we look back at where we have been, at looking back at this chapter, we see that Christ has called us in this book at large into fellowship with one another. That that Ephesians, the argument as a whole, is teaching us what a church is and does. And so as we see the goodness of Christ calling us into fellowship with one another, we see that we ought to seek his will for our lives. And so at times this seems a little repetitive or perhaps even more, more detailed than we would think or, or ought to consider. And, and maybe it's even moving beyond the basics. Uh, but we would do well to remind ourselves, as Richard Baxter writes in The Reformed Pastor, he says, Study hard, for the well is deep and our brains are shallow. <laughs> Speaking of the, the well of Scripture, the incredible depths that are there, and how we need to be reminded to go back to the well and continue to draw and draw and draw. Reminding ourselves that that Christ is the one who determines entry into the operation of the kingdom. He, He calls us into this work that he has begun. Therefore, it is his will and his plan, not our preferences, not our desires. And so that's a call for for each of us to put off the old self and put on the new. This can all seem a little broad and and general, and it can feel maybe even a little nebulous. Something that is far out there and and off in space, and we consider it and say, 
yeah, that's, that's nice, but I don't really know what it looks like in my day to day. But Christ is not a God who, who has called us to, to generalities, but rather, uh, even in this passage, as what fits the occasion, to, to apply this into our lives, to apply it here into our church. It is not intended to feel general, and rather is moving us to the specific. I'm reminded of uh, a a sketch by comedian Bob Newhart. Maybe you've seen it. It's probably 20 or 30 years old at this point. Uh, But he is a a psychiatrist, and a woman comes into his office, and uh, he he says, all right, let me explain my my billing policy uh, very quickly to you. The first five minutes are are $5, and and after that, it's it's free. And she says, wow, that sounds great. He says, you probably won't use all five minutes. Uh, she says, all right, he's, I don't make change, and kind of moving through this, but, and he says, all right, go. And she says, okay, well, I'm, I'm afraid of, of being buried alive, and claustrophobia, and begins moving through this, and he says, all right, I assume you don't want to go through this, I, I assume you would like that to, to end in your life, uh, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you two words, and this will conclude the end of our five minutes. She pulls out a notepad. He says, well, you probably remember it, but if you want to write it down, that's, that's fine. And, and he looks her in the face, and he says, and I'll move the mic away a little bit. He just says, stop it. She says, what, what, what do you mean? He says, stop it. Stop, S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. Stop it. Do you want to be buried alive in a box? No, that's, that sounds awful, right? Then, then stop it. Stop thinking about it. Stop, stop dwelling. It's just stop it. She says, okay, but I, I can't. I'm, I'm compelled. I'm, I'm moving. Stop it. She says, okay, but as an early age, no, we don't, we don't go into that. Uh, but my mom always said, no, we, we don't go there either. But my horoscope, no, we definitely don't do that. Stop it. And she okay, I haven't used all five minutes, and so let's move through some other things. And, and she moves through uh, bulimia and self-sabotage and all these other things. And you can uh, guess his advice, and it's... Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. And, and I, I think that's, that, that seems absurd, and, and obviously it, it's humorous, and, and we see the, uh, just the, the, the comedy in it. And yet how many of us have felt that or even heard that in the context of the church? That it feels general, it feels nebulous, it feels like horrible advice. Like, we've come to Jesus, here is my sin, here is my past, here is my old self, and what is the advice that we give? Stop it. Just just stop it. What, what does this look like in my life? No, we don't go there. And that's not at all what Christ has called us to. That's not at all what, what, what Christ has called the church to be. That following Christ doesn't stop at just stop it. It's not just that we would cease from sin, but rather we have the fullness of the description of the person of Christ. That we have specific actions that are, are given of what imitating him looks like. Not as a rule book that we, we follow in, in the sense of, of rigid legality. But of a new life. A, a new spirit dwelling within us. Of communing with God himself. That he doesn't leave us at stop it. But that he would die for us, take our place, and model for us the holy garments that we are to put on. And so this morning, as as we walk through this passage, I want to give 
uh, six garments, if you will, of what we clothe ourselves in. The, the new self puts on holiness in general, but that it fleshes itself out in specific action. The first one that we see here in the text is that the new self puts on holy truth. Looking again at verse 25, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. That this new self, as we put off the old, as we put off falsehood, that we clothe ourselves in holy truth. This is against falsehood, reminding ourselves, first of all, that God is truth. Elsewhere, we see that God hates a lying tongue. He hates deception. That truth finds its source in God himself, in his character, in his being. And so we know that because of this, there is no place for dishonesty among members of the body. That we can only work with what we know. We can only care for with one another through truth, through reality, through God himself. Why? Because we are members of one another. I think especially in an American context, we can hyper-individualize and and section off ourselves from one another that we have a me and Jesus faith that we do not see in Scripture. But what we need to see is that we are rooted together. I I love the imagery in Asda Scripture of uh, trees being well-rooted, of drawing nutrients and standing fast in storms, and the encouragement here is, is not just that there are uh, deep roots that we can put down, uh, but like the sequoias there in, in California, some of the largest trees uh, on the planet, uh, some of these you can they hollow out and you can drive through them, drive through their, their trunks. Their, uh, tr- their roots, rather, are, are not incredibly deep, but they're intertwined, they're connected. Even though there's not great depth there, they're all tied together, and so this, this massive forest, you won't see a sequoia standing off on its own, but under the surface, their roots are connected. So even at this great mass, when the storm blows through, well, even when there isn't depth, because of the community, because of the intertwinedness, they hold one another up. Even when we are, are shallow in the faith, even when we're not mature or growing in the way that Christ has called us to, If we would retain our unity in the spirit, if we would retain our unity in the bond of the church, Christ will root us together. That he he draws us together. He has rooted us together. We are members one of another, and this should shape the way that we speak to one another. That we would speak the truth and love. That the new self puts on a holy truth. I think that's probably an obvious one for us, not only as we read this passage, but also just as we, we think about the, the faith, as we, we think about morality in general. What do we, we tell kids? Uh, oh, you shouldn't lie. Right? Don't lie to your teacher. Don't lie to your mom. Don't lie to your dad. Don't, don't lie to, to anyone. And you talk about white lies or, or these big lies or anything, and we can say, oh, yeah, God doesn't like falsehood. That, that makes sense. The second one I think is, is perhaps a little disjointed in our minds. Perhaps something that even we, we say, hey, don't be angry. Be, being angry is a sin. Anger is a sin. And yet we turn here in Scripture and Ephesians says, be angry. So what, what does that mean? What does that look like? 
because it's at times at odds with how we've been brought up. But that we recognize that the new self puts on a holy anger. Because the verse doesn't end there just to justify our anger. We can be angry with anything or anyone at any extreme. Rather, we see, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. But that we would have a holy anger. That we would be angry and not sin. That we would dwell in anger apart from God. And necessarily gives opportunity to sin and the devil. If we in our anger are leading out and lashing out in angry ways that uh, are leading us to sin, this is too much. And so we say, well, what's, what's the difference? How do I have a holy anger versus an unholy anger? How do I assess whether in that moment, if I am angry, am I sinning or am I not? If we would have a holy anger, we would be angry with Think about the things that make God angry. Think about the things that we see in Scripture where it says, and God was angry or Christ was angry in a moment. What do we see? We see that God is angry at sin, that God is angry at idolatry, that God is angry at injustice, that God is angry at false teaching, that God is angry at legalism, that we would assess these things in our community and in our our own body and assess them as Christ does, that there is a time to have a holy anger, but to not be led into sin, to be led into a sinful anger is to ask of our anger, was this quick? Is it lingering? Is it vindictive? Is it harmful in my speech or my action? Has my anger moved beyond the work and character of God into my flesh? Because God is is angry with legalism. But he also calls the Pharisees into his faith. That he uses men like Paul and men like Nicodemus and invites them into the kingdom. That God is is angry with adultery. And so he can take the the woman that is cast before him and they say, stone her. And he can say to her, go and, and sin no more but he can also invite her to follow all of the teachings that he's given. That the anger of Christ does not go beyond his mercy and love. Yes, wrath is there, but it is tempered by his extension of mercy and grace. That his wrath is poured out even on himself. That we would not have a sinful anger, which is quick, lingering, vindictive, harmful, but that we would have an holy anger, angry with Christ, angry against the things of this world that are wicked, to call wickedness wickedness, but to love the people that are oppressed by it. Martin Luther says it in this way. He says, you cannot, of sin in general, but he says uh, that you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. And this is the reminder that we would not dwell on our anger in, in unhealthy ways, that we would not let it consume us, that we would, what we would consider would not let the sun set on our anger, that we would take action but also trust the Lord, that God is the avenger, not us, that God will pour out justice, not us, that God is the one who restores and so we imitate him 
even in the extent and limit of his anger. The third thing that we clothe ourselves in is that the new self puts on holy work. Notice he says to the thief in verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Don't you love how he turns this on his head? He says, not only are you going to, to put off stealing, are you going to put off immoral work, we're going to move towards honest work, good work that is moral and excellent, not just to provide for yourself, but as one who used to take from others, what are you going to do now? You're going to give to others. That Christ is turning the sin on his head, it's not to, to shame these people, but instead to call them higher. Once again, we can find ourselves uh, saying to, to sinners, recognizing that we uh, are somehow far removed from that label, and we say to them, stop it. And we, we say to the thief, we put him in a camp, we put him in a category, and, and this is Paul shaming uh, the, the immoral among them. Rather, he is calling them to a higher standard, recognizing that as uh, we see in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, He's listing those that don't inherit the kingdom. He's listing uh, the thieves and the liars and the wicked and the depraved. And then in verse 11, and he says, and such were some of you. See, when we, we get ourselves in, in this kind of higher uh, holiness, this holier than thou or, or goody two shoes or whatever you want to call it, when we consider ourselves in the church as above or, or beyond these other people, that would say, well, I, I would never. Paul's clearly not talking to me because I, I would never steal. I was, I was brought up better than that. My, my parents raised me right. But Paul rather is saying that such were some of you. You would. You, you did. <laughs> that this is the reality of, of sin in us. It's, no one is, is born a Christian. No one is born holy. Even if we're raised in the church, if there hasn't come a point where Christ has redeemed our hearts, then we are still far off from God. I've never missed a Sunday. Okay, what have you done with your sin? Christ is here to deal with us. Why? Because he put on a holy work. Not only in the sense of, of his flesh where he did moral work as training up as a carpenter, but as he went out, as God provided for him, it met his needs as he worked before us and ultimately as he moved to his work on the cross. How good was that work for others? That his work would be for anyone in Work is good. Work existed before sin came onto the scene. I, I hate uh, to, to ruin this perhaps for those that uh, maybe retirement is a, is a bit of its own idol. Uh, you're working towards it and you say, I can only get there. I'll never have to work again. Work existed before sin. And there's, a, there's a pretty good chance it's going to work in, in heaven. It's going to be beautiful and it's going to be good because we see the fullness of what work actually is. That work is here for us here on, on, on this earth to, to provide, to, to give, but it's also the ways that we worship. Remember in Exodus when God is, is calling Moses, he's, he's calling his people to him and he defines this theology of work. He, he lays out before them what work in the community 
looks like, and it is. But he also tempers that work to say that work is not everything. Work is not what consumes us. It doesn't define us. It is not our end or our ultimate being. What is the fourth commandment? Remember the Sabbath. Not not as this set-apart day necessarily, but this idea of remember rest. Remember that, that God created in six days, and what did he do in the end? He rested. That we can elevate work and busyness in ways that move beyond a holy work. In the same way that we say, be angry and do not sin, let your work align with the, the work of God and do not sin by extending it. Know when to rest. Know when to, to rest in God. I, I've heard Pastor Steve say, and I'm sure, uh, well, I'm not sure, he may be quoting it. it it's, it's very profound and very well could be him, but he, he said to, uh, to work from rest rather than for rest. And we're not burning ourselves out to say, I can finally get to Saturday. I can finally get to, to my PTO. I can finally get to spring break. Or I can finally get to whatever it may be. And, and we just fall in exhaustion at the end of that day. Rather, that we would find rest in God, in ourselves, recognizing our limitations. And that we would work from that as to the Lord that we would put on a holy There should be a difference in the way that we work and the way that the world works. There should be a difference in your co-worker's eyes to say, how do you work with such joy and energy and excellence? Not putting aside our our grief or our trouble, but living as God has called us to. That we would put on a holy work. The fourth thing that we see that Paul is calling us to put on in Christ is that we would put on a holy encouragement. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good and for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. This is more than the truth that we saw in verse 25. That this is our words ought to not only be true, but they ought to be edifying. That they ought to, to fit an occasion. That they ought to inform and build up and be productive in these ways. This is uh, more uh, than cussing. And in fact, I, when I was in high school, uh, this corruptive or, or rotten talk, this was used in our youth group. It's saying, oh, you, you can't cuss. Why? Because Ephesians uh, 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. And so what, they did, what we did, and uh, we'll assess it later, but uh, they were taking rubber bands, you know, just a little thick uh, elastic rubber, and writing on it, EPH 429, okay, Ephesians 429, you say, oh, that's nice, every, every uh, high schooler got a, a reminder that we shouldn't cuss, it's a little, a little more uh, vindictive than that, the idea was, if you hear your buddy cussing, you go over and you grab that rubber band, and as a reminder of their sin, And this is what it became. Our, our baseball team is, was a baseball team, and so we're, we're out there on the field, and you drop a pass, and Oh, bleep, right? And hustle over there because you're in the youth group together and you want to make sure that he's about his sanctification. Not in the game, of course, but pop. But we miss the, the point of this passage. We, we miss what is, what is happening here. That this corruptive or, or rotten talk isn't simply foul language. Though our, our speech should represent God in these ways. Rather, Paul is talking about corruptive, corrosive 
rotten talk. Never leave fruit out on the counter in one turns. What happens to those that are touching it? What happens to those that are near it? It begins to spread. Because this is what corrosive, corruptive, and rottenness does. And so what is corruptive talk here in the church? Well, maybe it's foul language. Maybe it's complaining. Maybe it's hurtful sarcasm. Maybe it's cynicism. Maybe it's outright insult or slander or gossip. Maybe if it's demeaning talk. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Perhaps we'll add maybe a modern proverb. If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Why? Because we should have our speech not in the sense that we're going around and popping one another, but instead that our speech would be edifying. Because what we missed there was, was the sense of legalism of you can't say these words. You can't do this. You can't do that. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Our speech never turned to encouragement. Our, our speech never, never turned to building one another up to edifying each other, to have genuine community and love for our neighbor. But this is what holy encouragement is. The Proverbs echo of this type of speech, of encouragement. They also echo of when not to speak at all. Not just if you don't have anything nice to say, but that there is a, a time and a wisdom behind silence. That oftentimes, especially when those are mourning, we don't have to throw out our advice, our solution. Let's, let me fix this for you. Just need to listen. We need to encourage them in their suffering. That this is what the new self puts on. So that we would put off corruptive and rotten speech and that we would encourage one another, that we would build up as fits the occasion, that we would give grace to those who hear. How gracious is our speech. Fifth, we see that the new self puts on holy spirits. Looking at verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This is what we are looking at, disregarding the will and purpose of God, that we would grieve the Spirit. Paul is talking about their actions. He's giving the, the specific garments of, of holiness, of when we speak in truth versus falseness, that we can be angry, but we do so without sin, that we would work well rather than to steal, that we would encourage rather than, than to be corruptive in our speech. He says, in all of these things, when we reach out and we lash out in falsehood and anger and theft and corruption, that this grieves the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit is grieved in us. So as we put this on, we, we put on the will and purpose of God, that we recognize to do otherwise, to remain in the old self, to, to wear those old garments, is to grieve the Holy Spirit. And we see this, right? If, if you are, are to give me a gift, if you're to, to give me a necktie, and I say, oh, that's, that's so nice of you. Thank you. That's so kind. It's, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. And you never see me wear it. <laughs> you, you might say, oh, did you misplace it? Did, did you move recently? Did, what, what happened there? Right, because when we give a gift, we, we expect it, or we at least hope that 
that they would find joy in it, that they would, would find benefit in it, that they would see it as beautiful, that they would use and wear it. The Spirit has given us his gift. He has given us himself, that God himself has dwelt within us. And so many of us say, oh, this is, that's so nice, God. Just put that in the bottom of the sock drawer. Just, just put that away. I'm more comfortable with this, this old stuff. I'm more comfortable with this clothing. And how much more is the Spirit of God? Thomas Akempis writes in his book, The Imitation of Christ, what good does it, speak, does it do to speak learnedly of the Trinity? If lacking humility, you displease the Trinity. I would rather feel contrition than know how to define it. For what would it profit us to know the whole Bible by heart and the principles of all the philosophers if we fail to live without the grace and love of God? That we would not grieve the Spirit, even as we inform ourselves, even if we know what is here, if we never put on the Spirit, if we never put on the garments of this new self, to put on the garments of Christ, to imitate Christ himself, that we move outside of this. Why? Because it reminds us that the Holy Spirit of God do not grieve. Why? Because we were sealed by him for the day of redemption. That we live in step with that seal. It, it confirms us. It affirms us. It sets us apart. It tells us who we are. It, it shows us that we are his. It shows us that to, to go against it is to go against God's authority. And it's to recognize that the Spirit has now shifted to define our not our preferences, not our desires. Not to say, I'm sealed by God, you, you can never oppose me. But rather, as we walk together as members of the same body, we move towards holiness with the Spirit of God within us. That our spirits would be defined by His Spirit. That the new self would put on holy truth, holy anger, holy work, holy encouragement, and holy spirits. Finally, that we would put on holy hearts. He concludes here, uh, starting in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away with you with all malice. To be kind to one another, to be tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So up to this point, we've seen kind of a, a one-for-one exchange. Put off falsehood, put on truth. Put off worldly anger, put on God's anger. Put off Stealing, put on holy work, put off corruptive speech, put on encouragement. Don't grieve the spirit, but work as it's sealing. Here we, we see a little more of kingdom math. And I like this kind of math because I'm not great at math. Uh, but this is what God says. He says, here we're going to put off these things. And he, he gives a list of, of six items. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. He, minus three, or I'm sorry, minus six plus three, and put on tenderheartedness, put on forgiveness, put on kindness. And what we're finding here is that in kingdom math, we can take away six things and only add three things and find that we are in Christ more full than we were before. That we can remove these painful and detrimental and toxic traits of life in the old self and put on the character of Christ and in the world's eyes, it's less. That is, we're walking through gentle and lowly, the idea that, that Christ could be weak, that he could be low, 
is, is foreigner as in say, oh, not my God. No, he humbled himself to the point of, of weakness, to, to humanity, even to the point of death, that he poured himself out for us, that he was never tarnished in the ways that we have been by bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice, but that he has always embodied kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. As we actively seek to root this out of our lives, we, we see where we are cruel towards one another, towards strangers, and we root that out. We, we see where we are bitter towards those that have harmed us, to situations that aren't our way, to see where active abuse happens, and to say Christ calls us higher. That this contrasted by the, the spirit of kindness and forgiveness and tenderheartedness, that we would give and forgive freely. Why? Because this is what Christ has done for us. Uh, don't you love the image of Palm Sunday? As we look ahead to, to Easter, we, we, of course, are, are looking to, to resurrection. Christ set his face to the cross. He set his face towards Jerusalem. He, he entered into the city to worship and praise and, and palm branches thrown before him and, and cloaks and shouts of Hosanna. And rightly so. But he knew that he was going to the cross. He knew that he was going to take on our sin. That that old garment that we are thrusting aside, that we are tossing off, he puts on so that he would bear the wrath of God in order to give us a new self, a new garment, a new holiness, one that is characterized by, by truth and anger at times and work in good and moral ways and in Encouragement towards one another and glorifying the spirit and acting in step with it as ones with holy hearts. Why? Because Christ has called us to be like him. And because he has called us to be like him, that we should live holy, with, with a W, holy, a wholeness towards the kingdom of God. That we would not say, this is an a la carte righteousness, an a la carte holiness where we would pick and choose which aspects we like, which aspects we want to keep, which aspects we want to put on. But rather we would say, not my will, but yours be done. Father, we thank you for, Lord, the goodness and grace of Christ. Lord, that he put on our sin to restore us to you. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for that work. God, and we ask that we would be made more like you. Lord, that your spirit would work in us to draw us to you. Lord, that we would look at the specific actions in our lives, Lord, the, the specific ways in which we have not been clothed in righteousness. Lord, and not with a, a sense of, of legalism or rigidness, but Lord, of, of grace and mercy patience. Lord, give us kind hearts. Lord, let us be tenderhearted with one another. Lord, let us forgive one another. Let us walk in step with you and your spirit.
Father, we, we trust your will. Father, we thank you for setting your face to Jerusalem. Lord, for the work that you've done in us. Lord, make us like you. We pray these things in Christ's name, in the power of your spirit.